Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. In 1948, President Harry S. Truman was a dead man walking. Running for a term of his own after inheriting the presidency three years earlier, he had no chance of winning it, and everyone knew it. Congress, the media, the polling experts. One prominent pollster simply stopped polling that September. What was the point? Everyone knew New York Governor Thomas Dewey was going to win. There was just one problem. The conventional wisdom was wrong. And so, on November 2nd, 1948 was the Chicago Daily Tribune. Its banner headline infamously announced Dewey defeats Truman, yet Dewey had lost. Somehow Truman won election to the job he'd seemingly stumbled into, the political upset of the 20th century. So how did the guy derided as a, quote, little man from Missouri show them all? That's the subject of A.J. Bame's fascinating new book. It's called Dewey Defeats Truman, the 1948 election and the battle for America's soul. And here with us today to talk about it is author A.J. Bame. A.J., welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So it's clear in your book that it wasn't just that Truman's victory was unlikely. His whole presidency was unlikely. Take us back. Who was this man that Roosevelt chose for his vice president? Well, um, that's actually the subject of my previous book, The Accidental President. And the story, um, you know, it's just to me, even after having lived with it for so long just shocks me that it's so it's just so unlikely so Mm -hmm. here you have a man who had never been the mayor of a city uh, never been governor of a state never uh, had the money to own his own home uh, no college degree ends up sort of by accident um, on the ticket in 1944 and uh, when FDR dies on April 12th 1945 Truman becomes president and I can't, you know, uh, overestimate the shock to the world because he was such an obscure figure. And I, uh, Arthur Vandenberg, a very important senator at the time, uh, wrote in his diary on April 12th, 1945, the question in every American heart is about Truman. Can he swing the job? Hmm. So by the time he gets uh, to 1948, already a lot has happened. Yeah, and I know this is the, the major topic of your previous book, but it does come so much into play then in this 1948 election. And that is that Truman ends up in this role because the Roosevelt team bumped the previous vice president, Henry Wallace. Why do you think they did that? Well, that's right. So Henry Wallace was um, a very fascinating but yet strange character. And he made a lot of people very nervous, firstly, because he was really far to the left. And he was just plain weird. And so there was this sort of uh, plot to get rid of him in the White House, which eventually FDR succumbed to. So Wallace unexpectedly gets kicked off the ticket in 1944. Uh, to make way for Truman. So so when Truman becomes president, Wallace is already angry because Wallace is thinking, well, I should be president. This mm-hmm. should be my moment. And um, uh, Wallace becomes a candidate and tries to tr- take Truman out and in the process uh, threatens to really um, shatter the Democratic Party during the 1948 election cycle. Yeah, and he is one of two different uh, third-party candidates. I guess you have a third-party candidate and a fourth-party candidate that, that Truman has to contend with. Um, he's running from the left. And then we have somebody running from pretty much the far right. Uh, this is South Carolina Governor Strong, Strom Thurmond. What prompted him to throw his hat in the ring here? Well, here's where the plot continues to thicken. So uh, Truman, you know, as we know, really was the first president uh, in 1947, 48, during this election cycle to really go after the African-American vote. Um, He desegregated the military. He was the first president to address the NAACP, the first president to campaign it in the spiritual home of black America in Harlem. 
And this didn't sit well with a lot of people. So the Democratic Party had this thing called the Solid South. All of these states in the South were, were, were the Solid South of the Democratic Party. But they were powerful white supremacists who really didn't appreciate Truman's civil rights plank. And so they went after him from the right. And Strom Thurmond became the candidate of the new Dixiecrat Party. Now, reading this, this decision Truman made to just completely alienate these core voters, it almost reads like political suicide. I mean, it's such a profile in courage, and that's so clear from your book. But it seems like if anybody decided, yeah, I'm just going to let this huge chunk of my base get so mad at me that they're going to leave, that, that this is something no smart politician would do. What do you think motivated Truman to decide to just kiss those voters goodbye? It's an, it's an ex- excellent question because in rear view, you know, some of these things make sense. But at the time, it seemed like political suicide. There were two things really uh, in this regard that Truman realized that um, it was very risky to go after the African-American vote. And it worked in the end. But at the time, people were pretty sure it would not. And so for the rest of his life, people would ask him, um, was this a political move? Did you do this? Did you, did you la- basically launch the modern civil rights movement because you believed it a moral issue, or did you think it would win you the election? Um, and in fact, it, it turned out to be both, because he was mm. from Missouri, a state that was segregated. Um, he grew up in a home where the N-word was used regularly, and people didn't think that, of all people, Harry Truman would be the one to launch the civil rights, modern civil rights movement, but he did. It was very risky, and it turned out it, it, it worked. But for the rest of his life, he really claimed he, he didn't do it for votes. He did it because he thought it was the right thing to do. It is fascinating. And, and you know, Missouri um, has had people on both sides of the Union-Confederacy debate. It was fascinating to learn. His parents both came from slave-owning families. He, he seems like he just took this real different path in life. Is there anything you learned in his biography that seemed like a pivotal moment where he just decided he was not going for this, this uh, Southern uh, feeling about minorities. Let me, it's a great question. Let me sort of answer that by painting a scene in the White House. He's sitting there in the Oval Office, and one day, um, uh, a, a racial crusader named Walter White came in to, to speak with him. And Walter White was this fascinating person because he identified as African American, but he appeared white. And mm-hmm. um, he had led a lot of investigations uh, of murders and lynchings in the South. And um, so he comes in to visit with the president, and there was at the time there was this rash of uh, violence against African Americans, and uh, but not a lot was reported about it because it happened in very rural places, and this is before you know television and the ubiquity of radio, and so it, a lot of this was underreported. So Walter White comes in and he starts telling this, these stories to the president. And he winds up with this story about a guy named Isaac Woodard. Now I'm on the radio. It happens that I'm looking at a picture of Isaac Woodard right now. Mm-hmm. Um, extraordinary parallels to a man named George Floyd today. Now mm-hmm. Isaac Woodard, four hours after being honorably discharged from the United States Army, having served in World War II, uh, he comes home and he has an altercation with a white police officer and he's blinded. Uh, during this altercation, and he becomes a cause celeb. Um, Orson Welles gets fired from his radio program for sticking up for Isaac Woodard. Um, Joe Lewis and Walter White took him on a speaking tour. So anyway, Walter White tells the story of Isaac Woodard to Truman, and sitting in the White House, Truman can't believe what he's hearing. He can't believe that there's this much violence against African Americans, and he says, we have to do something about this. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what he did. 
You know, you have a great um, excerpt in your book. You say, when critics suggested to Thurman that the civil rights platform embraced by the current Democratic platform was not much different from Roosevelt's platform in 1944, Strom Thurmond responded, I agree, but Truman really means it. Do you think that's an accurate assessment of the difference between these two administrations? Absolutely. It's a, it's, a, it's a funny quote. We can laugh at it now, but when you think about what they were talking about, it's kind of horrifying. But yes, yeah, so... So Eleanor Roosevelt was this was this friend of African America, Africa, uh, Black America, and and the NAACP and other groups really put pressure on her to get FDR to support civil rights in a much bigger way than he had done. Now FDR was very much a friend to the African American community, but he was only willing to go so far because he knew that if he supported really supported a civil rights program, he would lose the South. Mm-hmm. And uh, But Truman said, you know what, we're going to do it anyway. And he did. So Truman a- agrees to lose the South. He, he commits uh, what looked like political suicide. And yet, not to spoil this book, but let's face it, we all know Truman got reelected. Um, he still wins. I'm wondering how big a factor were these two third-party candidates? Do you think Dewey could have defeated Truman one-on-one? Um. No, I don't. Um, I think that Truman's his campaign strategy, just the strategy itself, was so extraordinarily effective. You know, he knew he couldn't win, or he was told he couldn't win, and so what he decided to do was launch a campaign unlike anything that had ever existed. And in the process, he really became like an American folk hero. So what he was going to do was go into towns all over America, places that had never seen a president, that people who had never believed in their lifetime they would actually lay eyes on a president of the United States. He would speak eight, nine, ten times a day, most of the time off the cuff, making this stuff up as he went. And he had this research team that would give him notes so that when he showed up in some little town, he would know that there was a sausage factory had just been built there, or there was a war hero who had just passed away. And he would connect with these people. And the strategy, it really worked. And so... Um, uh, when it came election night, uh, he was fully confident that he was going to win. Not even his wife and not even his daughter believed he was going to win, but he knew he would. It's crazy. As you depict in your book, he's getting these huge crowds and they are so enthusiastic for what he's saying. Shouldn't that have led someone in the media or these political polling operations to say, hey, this guy is actually maybe more popular than we're giving him credit for? Yes. And toward the end, that started to happen. But um only in a small way. There was a reporter named Robert Nixon. He's this hilarious guy. He wore this crooked hat and uh, an overcoat, even in the heat. But anyway, right before election day, he wrote this note to his editors uh, saying, "Hey, I think Truman is going to win." And they were like, "No way!" And they ignored him. They wouldn't um, let. They wouldn't run staff. this story. You you wrote. They, That's right. He they wrote it. They spiked it. He wrote the it. story and they trashed it. Yes. Classic editors. They got to listen to the reporters on the ground here. Right. <laughs> well, it's yes. I mean, you you have some great excerpts from these speeches, and uh, one of the ones I'm going to play here. Um, this is from the final speech of the campaign, and this comes at what was then Keel Auditorium, right here in St. Louis. Um, and this is Harry Truman speaking to a crowd that was just absolutely—they were eating out of his hand. So let's listen to a minute of that. When that message went to Congress, the smear campaign on your president started in all its vile and untruthfully slanted headlines, columns, and editorial. First character assassins, McCormick, Patterson, saboteurs, all began firing at me, as did the conservative columnists and the radio commentators, not because they believed anything they said or wrote, but because they were paid to do it. (laughs) 
In, in January 1946, I repeated what I thought the government should do, and I've repeated it time and again since that time, and I haven't changed a bit. I'm still... the Democrat, you nominated in Chicago on the Democratic platform of 1944, and I'm still for Roosevelt's New Deal. <laughs> now the saboteurs and character assassins did a lot better job than they intended to do in 1946. They elected that Republican do-nothing 80th Congress, and then they issued... <laughs> And that is Harry S. Truman at the Keel Auditorium, his last speech of the 1948 presidential campaign. And we're talking today to author A.J. Baim about his wonderful new book. It's called Dewey Defeats Truman, the 1948 Election and the Battle for America's Soul. A.J., you called this the ultimate give em hell Harry speech in your book. And this speech also really threw the press for a loop. Why was that? Well, this is a great question. Let me make two quick points on that front. One of the things that I really enjoyed about writing this book is the, the whole this whole idea that Truman went so many places that um, as you're reading it, whoever you are, wherever you live, there's a good chance that Truman visited your town. He came to my little tiny town in California and gave a speech, and I can go on the Truman Library website and listen to it. Um, so I, I think that's just a lot of fun It's because, you know, the way he could connect with people in so many different places. Now, this St. Louis speech was fascinating because he's riding back on the train, campaign train, from New York City, and all his speechwriters were so exhausted. It was the end of the campaign, and they created this speech and brought it to him and said, President Truman, here you go. And he's sitting with the Secretary of Treasury, John Snyder, who was from St. Louis, and re they read this speech, and they're both, they both decide this one's a total dud. This is a <laughs> terrible speech. So he shows up in St. Louis with no script and just gives the speech completely off the cuff. But meanwhile, the, the speech that, it, he, that had been written for him had been given out to all the reporters who had already written their stories for the next day's paper. So yeah, he threw them for a loop. So they had to redo those stories. Uh, the crowd goes wild. Uh, it, it sounded like, I think you were saying this was the final speech that he ever gave on his own behalf as in a campaign. Is that right? Uh, it's the final speech he ever gave um, uh, at an event. So he gave a little radio talk the next day. But yeah, in terms of like campaign rallies and campaign ex experience, uh, events uh, for him running for president, that was the last one of his career. Yes. Mm -hmm. He went out with a bang. Well, the most sure remarkable did. scene in this book, and your book has so many remarkable scenes, and this may be what happened on election night, but I actually want to go to the phone lines because we have Jerry calling from O'Fallon, and he has heard a possibly apocryphal story about what happened on election night. And AJ, I'm going to have you speak to that based on what Jerry wants to share here. So Jerry, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air. Hey, good afternoon. I read this anecdote years ago, and I believe it was in the biography plane speaking, but the site for this was the Muehlbach Hotel, because apparently that's where the campaign ended in Kansas City. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, uh, Truman accounts the, the day as it went, the last day of the election, and then said he went to his hotel room and went to bed. And people were incredulous that he essentially could go to sleep. And uh, he said, probably afterward, reflecting on it, I felt I had done everything I could do. And I went to sleep. And I, I always use that as an example of, you know, when to keep going and, and when, when to let go and, yeah. <laughs> and, and do, it, do what you need to do. But I don't know if that, 
you know, given the, um, unless I'm misremembering the precise location. Uh, yeah, Jerry, that's, that is a, a terrific anecdote you've got there. And I'm going to turn here to uh, author A.J. Baim. A.J., how much of that story that Jerry's been telling people for years is true? Jerry, it's just, it's a great story, and it's absolutely true. So this is what happened. Uh, it's Election Day. Um, Truman votes, and he goes to this dinner with his friends uh, in, uh, honestly, I can't remember if it's Independence or Kansas City. And so there's this dinner happening, and he says he's got to go to the bathroom, and Secret Service sneaks him out the back door, and he goes up to this uh, empty hotel, and he doesn't have a change of clothes, so he borrows a bathrobe, gets himself a ham sandwich, and goes to sleep. And people are incredulous because they don't know where he is. And so all you have these huge crowds outside of Harry Truman's home in Independence, and his daughter comes out on the, you know, at the front door and says, listen, we don't know where he is, and nobody can believe it. And um, But his Secret Service and select members of the campaign know where he is. In the middle of the night, they call him up and they say, "You, if you take one of these three states, you're going to win the whole thing. And he said, why, I'm going to take all three. And then he goes back to bed. <laughs> the Secret Service, they wake him up at 6 o'clock in the morning and they say, Mr. President, you won. And he said, let's go to Kansas City. <laughs> And, and he, he shows up at the Mulebach Hotel, yes. And as you tell in your book, he did win all three. I mean, he just, he seems to have this this serenity about this election and also just some clear-sightedness about it that no one else had. What do you attribute that to, knowing now, having written two books about him? How did he see this coming when no one else did? Well, you know, I think, to be honest with you, I think that if he had lost, um, you know, he wasn't going to go through the experience thinking that he was going to lose. So no one will ever know what he really felt in his heart, but everyone around him and everybody around him kept a diary and everyone around him wrote an oral history, uh, or did a oral history later. And every single one of these accounts says that there was absolutely no doubt he believed he was going to win. Hmm. Now, AJ, your book takes its name from the headline, the Chicago Daily Tribune got so very wrong. Um, it's a famous headline. It's equally famous as a photo. And that photo was taken here in St. Louis. What's the story behind that? That's right. So uh, Truman, he um, he wins the election. Uh, uh, he wakes up on November 3rd. He gets on his train. It's now November 4th. And he's uh, taken the train back to Washington, D.C. for his triumphant return to the nation's capital. And he stops in St. Louis and somebody hands him a copy of the Chicago Tribune. And he holds up this famous uh, front page of the tri Tribune. I think 150,000 of these first edition uh, newspapers had been printed Oof. that said Dewey defeats Truman. And so somebody snapped a picture of it. Uh, Time magazine later called this. Let me get the exact quote. Uh, where is it? The, the greatest photograph ever made of a politician celebrating victory, period. And that happened right there in St. Louis. And he just looks so happy in it. I have to concur with time on this. I mean, can you think of anything that even comes close? Not nothing, nothing at all. And it's just because the story itself is so extraordinary. The story, he, you know. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, I think he knew in the process that if he won, he would be considered an American folk hero. He knew it was the people were going to be talking about this and writing about this generations hence, and we are. Hmm. So your book, it just ends with such a joyful scene. And, you know, throughout your book, it's just wonderfully told. Somehow you managed to, to make it feel very suspenseful. We're all wondering, I think, how he's going to pull it off, even though we know that he pulls it off. We're wondering how. And it's just a great read. And yet the next four years weren't entirely happy. Do you think you might write another book to delve into what happens next? 
That, that's a good question. I don't know yet. And it's really interesting um, that when he left office, okay, I guess January 1953, to make way for Eisenhower, his, his approval ratings were in the pits. They were really not good. He was not very popular. He was thought of this president that nobody nobody disliked, but had, had been ineffective. And yet today, we think of him as this extraordinary figure. He usually ends up number six or number seven on greatest presidents of all time. And you'll hear Donald Trump quoting Truman. You'll hear Nancy Pelosi quoting Truman. And why is that? Why is he so revered today? And I think the story of the 1948 election really answers that question. Hmm. And of all the things I loved in your book, and if it's not clear to listeners, I really loved this book, I most love this expert, ec- excerpt um, that you found from a letter he wrote to his daughter, Margaret, in 1946. He wrote to her, to be a good president, I fear a man can't be his own mentor. He can't live the Sermon on the Mount. He must be Machiavelli, a liar, a double-crosser to be successful. So I probably won't be, thanks be to God. But I'm having a lot of fun trying the opposite approach. Maybe it will win. Do you think there's a lesson there for people right now who might be tempted to do the wrong thing just because that's what it takes to to get ahead in in whatever, uh, whatever place they're in right now? Yes. I mean, one of the reasons the story is so good is because the good guy wins, you know, and a lot of people might read the book and think differently, and that's okay. But um, uh, I'm glad you seized on that specific quote, because my favorite thing about President Truman, having written two books about him, is his relationship with his daughter and his relationship with his wife. I think it says so much about his character, and I'm so thankful that the letters and the diaries, um, they all exist, you know, today. And as you say, so much of these materials you're able to draw on, they are there at the Truman Presidential Library, which is there in Independence. It is a wonderful place to visit. I really want to strongly encourage any St. Louisan who hasn't gone to this library yet to check it out. And AJ, after all the time you've spent there now on two books, uh, what's your favorite thing in, in the collections or as part of this library there? Well, the, the library is going through an extraordinary renovation, so it's going to be reopened soonish. Who knows? But it's going to be brand new, so it's a great time to go and re-experience that part of our American history. Um, but my favorite part, uh, uh, going back to all the time I spent there, besides the, all the archives <laughs> themselves, uh, there's this section about the, the dropping of the atomic bomb, and there was a book there, and I'm assuming they'll still keep this as part of the exhibits. But there was a book uh, uh, where people were free to write in there what they thought about the bomb, whether it was a good idea that uh, President Truman used the bomb to end World War II or whether it was a bad idea. And you'll see the most amazing things written in there. And you can tell some of the people writing in there are six, seven years old just by their handwriting. Hmm. Um, and uh, that, it's just so moving. And yeah, that's my favorite that's my favorite spot of the of the museum. That's remarkable. And, and, you know, one of my favorite stories of this museum is they say that after his presidency, Truman would just go there and hang out and talk to regular people. It seems like unlike some of our other presidents who found ways to cash in or really join the global elite, he was just hairy. He went back to Missouri and, and went back to being a Missouri guy. It's just it's so strange to think about. Um, it, it almost seems impossible for that to happen these days to somebody elected to that office. I think you're right. And that's another thing that people loved about him so much is that he was a regular guy. He behaved like a regular guy. He plain speak and he spoke like a regular guy. So when he 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 had an extraordinary reverence, not for himself, but for the institution of the presidency. And when he was no longer president, he became a regular guy again. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was to be seen walking around independence, going for his blood pressure walks every day. 
So, AJ, last question for you. You've now spent so much time with Harry S. Truman and, and with this election. What's the one thing you would hope that readers would take away from this book? Don't believe the polls. Don't believe the polls. So a lot of people would say, read this book and say, you know what made the difference in the 1948 election is that so many Republican voters were sh- so sure that Dewey was going to win, they didn't bother to go and vote. Hmm. And so I'm saying to people today, whatever side you're on, it's 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 uh, it's imperative that you get to the that you fill out that ballot and place your vote. Boy, there's some uncanny parallels there, perhaps to 2016, and and we'll see what happens in 2020. But that's a that's we a sure great will. takeaway there. <laughs> uh, well, AJ Bame, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. It's such a pleasure. Thank you. And AJ's book, again, it's Dewey Defeats Truman, the 1948 Election and the Battle for America's Soul. You can order your copy through any number of local bookstores. Most of them are doing curbside service, and they would be happy to hook you up with this book. It's a great read. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.